Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Legal Tech Week. This is March 24th, 2023. I am Bob Ambrogi, uh, and I'm the moderator of this thing. And uh, I am, uh, we'll be talking about the conference I didn't get to go to uh, this week, uh, thanks to my little bout with COVID here, but uh, hear all about Legal Tech Week and some of the other news from the week. Uh, I am, uh, I write a blog called Law Sites and have a podcast called Law Next. And uh, our panelists this week, as you see them before you, uh, let's kick it off. My upper left, Joe, you want to kick it off? Sure. Uh, Joe Patrice from Above the Law and Thinking Like a Lawyer, the podcast. And uh, I, my name says Joe Patrice, but it should say disheveled because that's how I feel after uh, the events of the last couple of weeks. But I'm still here to talk a little bit of legal tech. Sounds good. And Nikki Black. Uh, I'm Nikki Black. Uh, I am on the beach in my mind, even if not in reality. I am the uh, senior director of SME and external education in my case. And I write legal tech columns for um, ABA Journal, Above the Law, the Daily Record. And I also oversee and write the um, My Case in Law Pay Legal Industry Report and our benchmark reports as well. All right, sounds good. Steve Embry. Hi, Steve Embry. I write the blog Tech Law Crossroads, and I guess uh, my name should say worn out because that's kind of how I feel after a legal week. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Jean O'Grady. Hi, uh, I'm Jean O'Grady. I am, uh, let's see, which which title am I using? I'm the, uh, the author and editor of Dewey B Strategic, and I also write a column for Legal Tech Hub. And how many other titles do you have? You're, you're going to be like Nikki Black. You can't keep track of your titles. <laughs> right. No, I'll never catch up with Nikki. <laughs> All right. And last but not least, Stephanie Wilkins. Hi. Yeah, Stephanie Wilkins, Editor-in-Chief of Legal Tech News at ALM. Coming off my first legal week, which I warned I, people I would be on my couch in pajamas, but I would still join. I don't even know what my title should be because I am beyond exhausted, but it was great. And I'm sure we will talk about that more. Oh man, I wish you had told me we were doing Clash t-shirts today. I've got my favorite Clash t-shirt. I got yeah, we yeah we all should have worn our favorite band t-shirt. I'll let my Beatles one. Yeah, I have multiple Clash shirts, so if you want to do it again, Bob, we can do. That. I got multiple Clash shirts too. I I had one. I had a great Clash shirt that I had actually gotten from the mother of one of the roadies for the Clash or something way back when I lived in the Virgin Islands. It was like my favorite shirt. I wore it for years, and my wife finally made me throw it away because it was like torn and falling apart, and I couldn't stop wearing it. But I respect that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, well, so uh, uh, I, I, I heard through my sources that, that Joe had 34 meetings this week uh, with various vendors and whatever. So he gets some kind of a lifetime achievement award for press briefings, I think, out, out of that. Well, you had more? You had more, Nikki? But you're nodding. Not even close. Like, eh, not nothing, even close. Nothing. I'm shaking my head at the sheer number. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, I wasn't there, uh, but all of you were. So uh, I don't know. Stephanie is your first one. What did you think? And you were uh, and you were like thrown right into the middle of the pond to learn to swim here this week. Yeah, I don't know if my impressions are, are are accurate by any means, but I mean, I had a great time. It was really busy. It went by really fast in a good way, like faster than I expected. I was obviously hectic for me, and I have no idea how many meetings I took. But I was on multiple panels. But 
it was great. It really went well. And I mean, again, I have no basis comparison, but everybody I talked to pulled me aside and said it was, you know, a great sense of energy, especially, you know, like last year, you know, I was like in the orbit last year, but everyone like didn't really know how to interact human to human yet, even though it was back in person. So I mean, the (laughs) biggest, the huge takeaway was like, everyone was like, oh, it's so great. I'm just people really, really excited. And my feet feel swollen. I didn't even think I was running around as much as I was, but um, yeah, I'm basically like a plug-in for AI on any given panel at this point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll say about the, the, the show being lively and all, I, my one impression I had as somebody who's gone to the show now for quite some time, it felt, it felt more energetic than it has in a long time. I thought that even pre-COVID, the show was kind of on the decline and dying and it is certainly not as crowded as it was when i first started going in 2013 or whatever but it 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 had an energy to it that it has not had in many years and i can't work that university so yeah sorry go ahead nikki oh i agree like i can't put my finger on that and tech show but this a little bit more than tech show for some reason and i don't know exactly what it was i mean i feels like the same show i've always gone to i don't know if it's just that we were all excited to be back and all acting like human beings again, like Stephanie said, or if it was, I think it was also just the GPT sort of has everyone energized about the possibility and both shows were able to pivot and include a bunch of GPT stuff. And, and it's just an exciting time to feel like you're in this space and there's like so many possibilities. So that may have contributed to it as well. I agree. I think that I do think that drove a lot of the energy. Although I have to, I I had to laugh the, with the the posters, the reveal posters everywhere. It looked like it was the reveal show. Did you all notice that? Well, I mean, they they are the headline sponsor. I think that was there. <laughs> I, I know bad for the other you know? e-discovery uh, platforms. Well, you know, well, I wasn't there, but I did like the e-discovery suck truck outside of uh, what looked like it was right outside of the Hilton maybe or something going on. I think that yeah, was Andy uh, from Logical. That, but that was amazing. I don't even know what that was. But I think yeah. it was Logical is what I heard. I'm not sure. Uh, okay. But I, I, I still think there was an overrepresentation of the Discovery products. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. is <laughs> as much as it has diversified from the old days, it is still ultimately e-discovery week. Uh, there, so. there are more things now, but it's well, maybe, still the biggest. I mean, the, maybe next year it'll just be AI week, Joe. Would you prefer that? I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's real close <laughs> to that. Already. The other interesting pivot was that FastCase was not, it was listed as FastCase, but they had a dock and alarm booth. They, at the last minute, they realized that the product they were really coming to, um, to legal week to market was dock and alarm <laughs> and not FastCase. So it was like, a, it was like FastCase was like this little tiny logo at the bottom you know, of the, of, of the booth. Yeah. On the AI front, on the AI front, I actually was talking, and this is some criticism potentially of the show. I was talking with some folks who were saying that they were a little, they were a little put off. They felt that there was a lot less program in the, in past years, as they've moved from legal tech to legal week, there's been an effort to have more programming about the legal profession outside of tech to kind of show that it's a little bit bigger. And I talked to some folks who were saying, you know, there weren't even diversity panels as much as there have been in the last few years. And I said that wasn't true because I I also saw somebody mention Google's BART uh, is in addition to GPT. Mm. So there was some diversity, at least as the uh, as the show was defining it. But no, it it was kind of an issue where the, the AI stuff did 
dominate the conversation so, so much. It did squeeze out some of those initiatives that over the past few years we've seen of trying to do more like business of law outside of just tech. Not that it wasn't there, but it was being squeezed a bit. Well, in a solo small track, is that is that mm. gone? That used to be for like a year. It was like almost like a sub sub conference, and it seems to have disappeared this year. That's right? gone. Yeah. In fairness, I kind of like that because it, I like that if this show were to stay in March, and I know it's going to move back, but being in March, I kind of always thought well, the last couple of years that it's been in March, I've been like, I don't need this track. That's why I was at Tech Show. I get to see all of that at Tech Show, which, as you pointed out, also had more energy this year. And yeah. now when it moves back to January or whatever, maybe maybe that could come back. But it was interesting having watching it from afar and not being there this year, because watching it on social media, reading what people were talking about, it felt you could sort of feel like there was a lot of energy, but the energy felt all around AI and, and yeah. GPT. Uh, and then when I kind of sat down to look at like, what's all the news announcements coming out of the show, they're all like e-discovery and e-discovery and contracts and contracts and like the same old shit, although they're all, you know, incorporating some aspect, they're all, we won't, now we've got chat GPT in our product, uh, mm -hmm. uh, big deal. But um, so, you know, yeah. it, it was really interesting that it, that it was, I, I mean, I think there's, I think it's not far-fetched to say next year it is going to be all about AI and, and, and GPT. It's funny. This morning, I even got an email from OpenTable saying they had added ChatGDP to OpenTable. So. Yeah, they, have, they, announced, um, <laughs> they announced plugins yesterday into, yeah. and you have, you have to join the wait list. I've joined it, but I have not yet been granted access. Has anyone here got access to that yet? Wait, this is the Open, the open Table? Um, open, has plugins. Open yeah. yeah. Oh, um, the plugins thing. Yeah. It, it, yeah. So, so it, it, it can it can tell you it's rejecting your your reservation to the nice restaurant automatically. Well, I think like you, you know. Even... No, I think you can tell it. I want to make reservations tonight at this time for two people. Uh, what are my options? Okay, book it for me. And um, there's already that's kind of what it already did. <laughs> well, but it doesn't have access to the internet, so it can't do that right mm -hmm. now. But, but there are, I just wrote my daily record article, which I didn't include as a topic for this show because we were talking more about Legal Week, but about the plugins, I've not plugins, but unofficial um, integrations that I've discovered and stuff into chat GPT. And there is one that lets you toggle on and off access to the internet. So you can run a search of the internet through chat GPT and it gives you, you know, current results that are external. And there's also other ones that toggle other things. Like one is like a prompt generator and you can find prompts people have already used so you don't have to rewrite them. Um, there's a part of, and there's another one that allows you to just push the button and speak to it so you don't have to type. So there mm -hmm. is a number of different really interesting, um, not, not official plugins, but tools, browser extensions really is what they are right now. So. Yeah, anyway. You know, a lot of the vendors that I talk to seem to be um, E more eager than in the past to develop and, and showcase integrations, both with other things that they were doing and also other developers, which I think is really kind of cool because, you know, one of the, one of the complaints about legal technology over the years has been, you know, we got so many products and they don't work together and it's all piecemeal. And we got, you know, we got to go 10 different places and talk to 10 different ITs. I mean, 10 different developers and it's just a royal pain and, so I think that's good. And I think actually the chat GPT is probably, you know, motivated people to, to talk in terms of that. The other thing I thought was 
you know, I kind of liked the, the show in March. Uh, it was a little warmer outside. It wasn't as cold. It didn't snow, which was a first for me for all the years I've been coming. And I think that kind of lifted people's spirits a little bit and maybe led to, to a little bit more of the excitement. Yeah, I've heard, I've, I've heard a lot about this. Um, nobody seems neutral about the change of the date back. People are either overjoyed or dismayed. I mean, not that I have anything to do with that, but um, yeah, it's it's going back to where it always was. It was a COVID change to move it to March in the first place because they were trying to uh, avoid post-holiday Omicron surges and things like that, um, especially last year. And so it's going back. And you know what? This week could have been horrible and snowy also in March. It's New York. Right. <laughs> yeah, you never know. And as what, a program, I'm curious. Like, what... the, on the AI programming part, it's, it's interesting now that I have more of like an inside baseball view of it is that, you know, there's ALM tracks, but so many like people sponsor sessions and they do like Joe and I were on a relativity session. And a lot of those sponsors are e-discovery sponsors and they can kind of do whatever they want. And a lot of them just pivoted to AI. Right. So it's not even like here's ALM forcing AI down your throat, even though that's sort of my role, but you know, yeah, it's who knows by next year, what we'll be talking. It'll be AI, but it'll be a different kind of AI. I don't know. But I, I'd like to comment. One of the things I thought was at least one or two of the programs I went to that were sponsored by vendors. I thought the quality of the panelists was they were not top flight. I mean, like there was one where I really had a lot of expertise and the person who was on the panel. I don't know. I, I just was I'm like, gonna, eh, I'm not sure you should be on this panel. I, I, I'm going to jump in and from... point out. I'm going to jump in before that yeah. happens and point yeah. out Gene was not at the panel. Stephanie and I were on. No, 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 no. Clear. <laughs> no, I mean, we we posted a, we, a daily roundup where our reporters yeah. and myself just like did our little reactions. Yeah. And a couple of them made that comment on a few of the panels they were on also that they were like, hmm, I don't even know yeah, that like they a, know. Yeah. Like, but what's your area of expertise? Were... How did you get on this panel other than you bought the product? You know? But there were, I mean, that said, there were a lot. I mean, I I unfortunately didn't even have a chance to go to a single panel that I wasn't yeah. on other than yeah. Louisville Barber, yeah. Louisville Barber and Keynote. No. But, uh, but there were a ton of them. I mean, there's so many panels, right? Like tons yeah. of them were amazing. Yes. Yeah. No, I agree. Well, but it just sort of irked me that there, there didn't seem to be really good vetting of the, you know, I'd be, and also you'd be in the, and it, well, I, I, the other great pivot, Bob, I don't know if you heard about this was the pan, the, the day one panel oh with God. a free panel on GPT. Oh and I yeah. thought as soon as I got there, I'm like, this room is too small. This room is too small. And <laughs> the room was literally bulging. And Stephanie, you want to tell a story? How did that <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, they added that because, you know, you you schedule all the programming so far in advance and they definitely leave in wiggle room to add new topics like AI or things like that. And so, I mean, it wasn't like ChatGPT didn't even blow up until December and then GPT started coming in in January, which isn't really long to change a massive conference schedule. So they added the three hour workshop on AI on Monday. And a lot of people don't even show up because the only other thing Monday night was the awards, right? But they had it and they got the biggest room they could pop, they had available by the Hilton at the time. Like on Monday, the Hilton wasn't even letting us in our, like our, our press room, you know, they had the biggest room they had available. And then it was standing room only. I almost saw fist fights break out trying to get in it. <laughs> I showed up, I couldn't even be there. I could only pop in and out because I had to do like dress rehearsal for the awards, you know? And then like I tried to get in, I heard the, I, the faces of the staff just trying to keep people out. 
they let me go in because I work at ALM, right? And like, I could hear people behind me being like, why did she get to go in? And they're like, oh my God, she works here. At one point they had to move the session next door to a different room mid workshop. So they could open the door, the wall in between and get twice as many people in. And even then it was like literal almost fistfights going. And it's like, okay, I mean, note to self, but that's why there was so much energy. Everyone was like all adrenaline up from fistfights before the show even started. <laughs> Except there fight. were no fistfights this year. There was a fistfight last year that got yeah. us kicked out of that one party. But who were the people? Who were the people who were at? Who were at, who were the people who were at Legal Week this year? I mean, were there lawyers there, or were they mostly uh, vendor people and product people and IT people? Uh, I mean, you used to get lawyers at Legal Week. It seems like over the last few years, it's fewer and fewer. I I think there were lawyers, but I mean, Stephanie, ALM must have a breakdown. I mean, I'm positive they do. I I haven't necessarily seen it, but there were a good number of lawyers there. I mean, I think depending on the track and the section of the session, it's, you know, very selective in who goes to what. But I feel like a lot of the more intro AI panels or like state of the industry panels actually got more of the lawyers because you've had people stood up in them. I mean, very, just very openly being like, I'm an old school lawyer. This terrifies me. What do I do? Right. So, you know, I That's mean, it's true. Collective that is true. For each kind. Yeah. Because I thought it was interesting that that Lexus study that came out this week about, uh, you know, the sort of level of familiarity with generative AI among legal professionals and and the level of use of generative AI of legal professionals, which I guess kind of said that legal professionals overall are more familiar with this stuff than the general public, but they're still not really using it for the most part. Uh, and, and I know, Steve, you wrote a column this week about you know, sort of the, the whole issue of, of are lawyers even competent to be using this yeah. stuff? And so, I mean, I wondered whether whether that, you know, was was talked about at all in any of these programs at, at uh, Legal Week or, or what your thoughts are on that. I, I didn't hear it talked about a lot, but, you know, I sat in that <laughs> opening three-hour marathon workshop, which uh, was quite <laughs> like a, when, it, when it first started and we were all in one room, it was like being in the middle seat on a very long airplane ride <laughs> but uh they didn't talk about it but as i was sitting there thinking about it and and i got some commentary to a previous post um you know i think a lot of people are throwing around the term chat gpt like the term kleenex you know i mean kleenex is a brand right it's it's tissue paper and i worry that some lawyers are out there reading all the hype and thinking, oh, well, I'll just go use chat GPT to see what I can do. And, and it's so easy to use, right? I mean, it's, it's, it, you don't have to look hard for it. You just pop in and type something. And I don't know that, that certainly the, the commentary and the technical report by OpenAI about that it, it should not be, actually they say prohibited, uh, it's prohibited to use it for, they, for important stuff like legal advice, like legal advice. <laughs> and I don't, I would, you know, yeah, I, you know, I don't know that that message is coming across very well, and I just, you know, I think worry that they'll be able to do something, and nobody's, yeah. nobody's really knowing what the hell they're, what the hell they're using. <laughs> well, you know, I've been screaming that into the void for months, even back when you yeah. all were all on this panel were laughing at me for constantly talking about it. I mean, like, yes. <laughs> I mean, that came up at, at the, the private case text event where they uh, launched their workflow for contract review. And and 
you know, even they had two professors, Andy Perlman and Stephen Gillers, and they both said that they need to start teaching about it in law school. They need to have lawyers understand how to work with AI, how to be critical of AI. And even, I mean, uh, Pablo was was saying that it it can be dangerous in the hands of the wrong person and that, mm-hmm. that we have to start really early in the education of lawyers so they know how to assess what it's doing. So I, I th- and I thought, you know, Perlman made a really interesting comment about, uh, I think it's rule 5B3, 5, 5.3 about ma- supervision of, um, of assistance. And he said that, I thought it was interesting, he pointed out that they changed the word in the heading from assistant with a T to assistance with a C-E. Yeah. But then if you read, so it would accommodate um, the supervision of AI. But then I read through the whole rule and commentary and it goes back to refer to people. So I don't think it was actually as clarified in the last ABA revision as as he was he was suggesting it was. Well, no, I, but if you look at the ethics opinions on duty of tech competence, they talk very yeah. clearly about the duty of a lawyer to supervise the use of technology on a matter and to ensure that technology is being used properly and to ensure that confidences are being protected and all of that stuff and and to supervise any vendors using technology on a matter. So to me, that always raises this like giant catch 22 of if you don't understand the tech, then you ain't able to supervise anybody using that tech. And I think that's a real problem for a lot of the legal profession right now. I think there's, there's two different things. A, this is a short-lived problem, I would suggest, because GPT-4 and the next iterations of this are exponentially, I mean, we're on that Moore's Law chart where all of a sudden it just practically goes off the chart because tech is changing so exponentially quickly. So it's a, this is going to be a very small problem in a year from now. I think we're going to be in a very different place, meaning GPT-4 and it's the subsequent versions of it are going to be incorporated into legal tools and the legal programmers and developers on that side are going to have given it the guidance that it needs so that they've rolled out a professional product that can be used by professionals that's reliable because otherwise they're putting themselves at risk. Um, I mean, mean, the other thing that people don't realize is that both Lexus and Wessel already have these what answer camp cards. So lawyers are already relying in many, while those were not built on, on, uh, open AI, you know, they, they were Wes and, and Lexus's version of AI generated answers. So, I mean, it, it's already in a lot of places. Well, the, the other thing I'd wanted to mention too, was that in relation to what Bob had just said, and it sort of ties into what you just said too, Gene, is um, I would suggest that my interpretation of the tech competence is that lawyers have an obligation to have, to have a basic understanding of the tech they use and to supervise people that uh, like IT professionals or whomever it is that they've delegated this responsibility to or assistance, the, the ethical um, application of these tools, meaning they have to understand the ethical implication and make sure that whoever's using these tools is complying with that, um, on, who's using these tools on their behalf. And so um, I think that that's more what, you know, otherwise you can't use any output, you, you can't use software because you don't understand the programming. You know, you can't right. use cloud computing because you don't understand AWS and cloud computing servers and how they separate information on their servers so there's not a leakage of two different companies' data or something. 
You can still use it and not understand that, but you have to vet the company that you're using for no matter whatever, or the, or the company or the people, the third party, you have to, you've always had to do that. You got to vet them, make sure they've got um, controls in place to, con to determine who can access the data, under what circumstances, how is the data protected, encrypted, et cetera. And that applies to like a process server. Who are you? What, what do you have in place to make sure that you're not handing it to the wrong person, to make sure that your employees aren't reading this if it's privileged or whatever the case may be? You know, we've always had to do that. And this is just a different kind of vetting and um, uh, tech competency issue as it applies to AI. I don't think you need to understand the underlying AI. You have to no, and I 100% yeah. agree with that. And I would add to it the, the duty to actually look at the output and check it over and make sure that it's right, which I feel like that's what makes this difference, this kind of technology different to me in this conversation is too many people are falling for the, oh, it's magic. I'm out of the picture now. And I totally agree with you. You have to vet the vendor that's doing it. You have to vet how it's being used, the information that's being put in it. But also you can't just, even the most powerful models, you can't just trust them. That's a duty to remember to look this over at the end. One of the, one of the comments I got to my previous article was an interesting and the guy raised it, particularly in light of the warning in the technical open AI report. You know, what is the impact upon that if, if there is a malpractice claim um, both substantively as to the claim and and from a from an insurance coverage standpoint, if you if you use Chat GPT to do something that's prohibited, how does that impact it? And and I I will hasten to add now that I've raised the word malpractice, that Mr. Ambrosi has finally publicly admitted that he was the one that <laughs> said it will someday be malpractice not to use data analytics. So. Fine. My quote. Controversy, my quote. controversy has ended. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Nikki, I'm not entirely sure I agree with you about the tech composite. We don't want, need to go off on that tangent. But I, I mean, again, if you read some of those key uh, ethics, I mean, like that, the ABA one from uh, a couple of years ago on uh, on data on uh, email uh, encryption and whatever. I mean, one of the things they say, they say several times in that opinion that lawyers need to understand, you know, how email is transmitted, where it's stored, how data is transmitted electronically, where it's stored, how it's protected, where it's stored. I mean, they do have to understand something about the, the actual technology here. It's not enough to just have a third party okay. in, in advising you. Agree. Yeah. I may have missed what, you have to understand the basic of that underlying technology, but you don't have to understand um, the programming behind how email is encrypted right, right. You don't or have to um, yeah. how does AWS compartmentalize the data on their um, huge servers between different companies. I 100% like I tell a story when I give talks about how my daughter was served alcohol by my aunt and how she told me later on, you know, eighth grade health class didn't prepare me for this mom. I know I'm supposed to just say no, but I'm also supposed to be polite. You know, and I said, well, what do you do? I thought about everything I'd learned and what they told me and what I'm, and so I drank the wine. And I was like, good, at least you've used your education and the foundational learning to make an informed decision. And so lawyers have to have that. I agree a hundred percent. And if I don't mean to imply that I, I agree with you on that hundred percent. One of the analogies I, I, I just was thinking of an analogy from the movie interstellar, which I don't know if many people watched, but there's a point where they're having a conversation about how people who used to, you know, great sailors, there were great sailors who never learned how to swim. Uh, and, there's something to not understanding why the thing is happening, but still understanding the mechanics of how the boat works. Uh, and that those are two distinct things. 
I feel like that's the the line that we don't really have a rule for elegantly written for, but that's the distinction here, I think. So uh, the suspense is killing me because Joe, you, you put something earlier in the in the chat that there was actually something interesting yeah. besides AI at Legal Week. So wh yeah. what was that? Uh, li uh, liquid text. Uh, <laughs> it was amazing. It was so much fun. Let me see if I can find. I actually have. Oh, I've written about liquid have. text. Oh yeah, it's amazing. Oh, yeah. It. Yeah, I, I wrote about it a long I, time ago when it first came out, but it is a really oh, cool. Oh man. Tool. Uh, so yeah, so I I had a meeting with it. Uh, I saw it, and at first I was getting the pitch, and I was hearing a lot of things where I was like, "Yeah, I mean, Ooh, I wrote whatever. about it in 2017. I, sure. That's a long time ago. Never mind." Wow. Yeah. So because uh, it didn't start as a legal application, right? It started as something more broad, I think. Well, my my I mean, obviously headline was: "This app may forever change how you read legal documents." That's what I wrote in 2017. Yeah. Well, so I saw it, and then uh, later in the day, I saw. Caroline Hill, who has decided to ghost us yet again, but Caroline was watching it. Um, yeah, I, there is some AI in there, but it's not going to be GPT-ish AI. Let's put it that way. All right. So I, I, there's AI in everything, but there's not like the, that kind of AI. Anyway, uh, sitting with, um, I saw Caroline getting her briefing and right after it, I walked over and said, wasn't that cool? And she, she was effusive and explicitly uh said that it was cool uh expletively said it was cool uh we, it was really impressive just the the ways in which the kind of the pitch he gives that i think is a very accurate is that people try to turn paper into digital all the time and we end up getting the worst of both worlds because we try to create digital versions of paper and what his research as when he was getting his phd was on is what are the parts of paper that the human brain finds so appealing and just bringing that part over to digital while maintaining the digital frame. And I got to say, like playing around with it, all I could think is that is exactly what he did. He took the parts of paper that I like without all the parts I don't and built something. I, I yeah, we were, we were impressed. I, and there were other people. I, I don't know who all's in this conversation. I know I talked to Deb Tessard. She also pointed out that that was the coolest thing she saw. Uh, yeah, we were very, all, there, there was a yeah. lot of people talking. Yeah, Reese from our team is the one that took that briefing and he loved it too. Yeah. Good. Well, I'm glad to see they're getting, uh, I, I haven't looked at it lately. I got to, I got to check it out again, but uh, uh, I'm glad to hear because I thought that was a cool product way back when I first saw it. Uh, what else, uh, what was the, uh, what was the big debate between, uh, Gene and Joe about research billing codes? Was that part of, <laughs> I, I don't think Joe understood why this, why I went down this. Well, you know how we were, I do, <clears throat> I do. I, I understand the reason. Cause I was there too, back in the day, but yeah, no, no. But no, the, the immediate reason was we were in a room with all these executives from Lexus <laughs> And they were talking about how wonderful they're putting IntelliJize and they're putting Lexmog and they're moving all of it into the main Lexus platform. The problem with that is that today, 99% of lawyers have to go through the scourge of putting in a billing number and the potential of charging a client. And I am, I am at this point in my career so completely fed up with the, the idea of cost recovery, which has con continued to plummet. And I, I my first blog post that put my blog on the map back in 2011 
was we are wasting our time and we are distracting lawyers from finding the answer. The only thing we should care about is serving the client and making sure the associates get to the answer quickly and putting all these barriers and these anxiety and fear about cost. You know, how much does this document cost? What if I what if I do this? What if I do that? It it ka-ching, 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 it paralyzes associates. And unfortunately, Lexus's vision of creating their unified Lexus universe involves moving all these previously get it on your own, you know, get standalone products such as Intelligize, um, even their uh, practical guidance tool is behind the paywall unless you insist that they remove it. Their treatises are behind the paywall. So I'm just, uh, I am just cranky and fed up with the whole thing. And they, and I, yeah. Yeah, and I get that. And, 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 you know, we we had a meeting to hear about their new products. And as soon as this was mentioned, this became most of the meeting for a while. Uh, But (laughs) but it's I understand that concern because I definitely remember being a young associate and seeing and and policing my own research, sitting back and saying, like, I don't want to put in this query because I don't want to arguably cost us more money. Um, And by us, I mean, theoretically, the client, but as Gene points out, we were already on a downward slide as to whether or not that was recoverable. So cost us any more money. Uh, And so I got that. Uh, That said, I also see the analytic argument that knowing what work is being done on a case is valuable for the analytics side. You need to know that, you know, oh, we, we did these queries for this matter number to be able to crunch the number and be like, here's what's being used. I think that's that's a thing that you can't capture too many other ways. I also think that there's something to be said for saving searches and having kind of a kind of an integrated across all of those different products. Here's all the stuff that people looked at with regard to this matter number. Uh, And so I see that as value too. And I worry, I get the paralyzation argument because I think it's real, or at least it used to be. Uh, I don't know if maybe young, in some firms, maybe younger associates have been trained on we're never going to recover this, so just go crazy. But if they are still being told that things cost money, it, they need to maybe be better trained that not everything costs money just because you put a matter number in there. But I see a value to it. I see a reason why they need to maintain that, barring some other mechanism for keeping all of that tied to a matter. I have to be, I, I agree with you if that's what we're, we're happening, but I, I actually don't think that there is any law firm that takes the data from the client data from Lexis and Westlaw and analyzes it. I've just never heard of that happening. Uh, I mean, I think it's more likely there are now desktop tools that can capture what associates are doing at different times of the day. And I think it's more likely to happen passively, but I, I think that you know, this, the, this, so at one point I had just said to Carl, I just said, just take away the billing apparatus. Just, uh, and he said, well, why should we? And I pointed out later that Lexus had actually invented, and I don't know, you know, Bob, you were probably around when, Le, you know, Lexus first <laughs> online system. Stone well, age I, was we're too, I was too, I was too, and I guess maybe Steve was, but if initially it was a marketing tool, I think because online research was so alien. And at that point, Lexus 
was charging on an, inc an actual incremental basis, there was a real retail invoice associated with every search. That has that is long gone. And so now we're in a completely different environment. You know, 30 years later, clients don't want to pay for it. Everyone has a flat fee contract. And there's this whole funny money and still it's paralyzing associates and keeping them from focusing on just getting the friggin' answer. So yeah. I I in I, I'm not sure. I feel like there's a transition here to Stephanie's story about Sally and 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 codes and and using GPT to automate the insertion of Sally codes. But in my COVID fog, I'm not exactly sure what that transition is. But but we can I, just go run with it. <laughs> I kind of felt that too. Once they said codes, I'm like, oh, there's yeah, a Sally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's gonna be codes. Yeah. yeah. Billing yeah. stuff. <laughs> um. Yeah. So Sally has supercharged all their um their coding there. I, I mean, it was actually fascinating. I, I got the demo uh, advance of what they did at uh, Legal Week, but um, I was not as familiar with the whole, what the work of Sally before this, but um, they've just, everything they were showing me, like they, they Damien Real said, was in a, they were trying to get everyone to speak the same data language within legal and just their ability to just go through, you know, say your law firm calls something this wacky practice area, but really what you mean is something straightforward, it can recognize that and it applies codes to everything. And it's just, I mean, it helps with from the billing, it helps like, and they want to do it too within Lexus, within Westlaw. So everyone, anytime you're talking about a practice area or a task or a matter thing, everyone's using the same data language and it makes billing easier, it makes everything easier. And it's just like, it's kind of mind blowing to watch it happen in real time when you watch the demo. Yeah, I, I think what's cool, I, I saw, I think I actually just saw, you mentioned, I think, uh, Michael Barmarino and Dan Katz um, using, sort of creating this integration using GPT in order to kind of automatically, I guess, tag or programmatically tag yeah. stuff with Sally tags. Uh, and I saw at LinkedIn, maybe just today or yesterday, they've now put it up like an open, I think you mentioned your story too, but they put up an open, uh, open to anybody uh, interface to use to try that out where you yeah. can kind of just drop in some text and it yeah. will tell you the tags and you can always you can always go in and play with the sally tags directly but it kind of relates back to lexus and westlaw because both lexus and westlaw say they are working with sally and cooperating with sally and developing these this uh taxonomy but um then when you kind of push them on it they're both also maintaining their own taxonomies uh, and and their own standards, which they both say are you know uh, more mature and more uh, advanced than than the Sally taxonomy. So uh, I think that's going to be a real big question going forward of how you get uh, you know you're, you're going to have to get those big players, the, the Bloomberg's and the Westlaw's and the, and the LexisNexis and everything kind of fully embracing the Sally standards uh, in order for that to really become a universal standard. But then it can maybe maybe help address some of the very kinds of concerns you're, you're talking about, Gene, a few minutes ago. And, and, well, and ideally with this new AI behind it, more people will adopt it because it's so much easier to apply. And I just wanted to highlight from writing this up, I mean, I respect them on the level of, you know, we're always talking about, you know, GPT and people slapping labels on things and claiming it's this and it's not this. And talking to them, I was like, okay, so 
I just so I'm clear, like, do you want me to run with like this? You're using GPT-4. And they're like, well, actually, can you say that we have access to GPT-4 and access to GPT-3.5 Turbo? And we're figuring out what is the best use and which part of it. And our whole goal is to do it the fastest, most possible way. Sometimes this model might be slower, even though it's technically more advanced. And they're doing it so thoughtfully. And I found that aspect refreshing in a world where we're all starting to see PR where people are just slapping labels on things, even if it's not things like they're really doing a thoughtful job of it. And I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, what else? Uh, I mean, uh, Nikki, you mentioned the keynote in your in your notes for the show uh, here. Uh, yeah. What did you think? Well, the, the reason I wanted to bring up the keynote is first, I thought it was really good. But I also think that there are some analogies to um, what he was talking about, which was storytelling and authenticity in storytelling to, um, which is LeVar Burton. Going, I mean, right. Yes. That, yeah. That's what I was just going to jump in. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. LeVar Burton. I didn't mention his oh, name, but LeVar, LeVar Burton. Burton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Um, and, but there's analogies to sort of where we're headed and how AI is going to impact storytelling and the jobs that we all do. And so that's what I thought was so interesting was what he was saying, because, you know, LeVar Burton, <clears throat> I was excited because I was a, I'm a Trekkie and I'm a geek and I Star Trek, the next generation got me through law school. So I was super excited about that, but really I think what drives him in the essence of sort of who he's become and what really um, uh, resonates with him is the storytelling from him doing the um, reading rainbow all those years. And, and uh, so what he talked about was um, how uh, storytelling is really what drives him and storytelling is sort of the essence of what makes us human, of what brings us together in community and that what people truly want to hear is authenticity and they want to understand why people do what they do and who they are and you know what drives them. And he also talked a little bit about how um, another reason storytelling is so important to him is having grown up as a um, black man in our culture and he's 66, I think he said, you know, growing up, there were no, in the stories that he read and watched, there were not a lot of role models that looked anything like him. And so partly that's why he was drawn to science fiction. Um, and Gene Roddenberry was this idea. And that's what I loved about Star Trek, the next generation. There's just women and women work and there's no sexism and there's people and aliens and it doesn't matter what you look like or who you are. We all just contribute to the society and money doesn't matter. Like it's this wonderful utopia of the future. Um, and where AI just does our bidding and we're all just super happy. Um, but so, but he talked about how that's partly what drew him to um, Star Trek and how part of what he tries to do is um, uh, include diversity in storytelling so that everyone eventually has, sees themselves represented in like the storytelling that occurs in our culture. Um, but what, in retrospect, sort of looking back on that, and he was a wonderful speaker, you know, he uses alliteration and he pauses and he has a resonance to his voice. And, you know, it was almost like poetry. And it was such an atypical keynote for legal week as well, or legal tech, legal week, you know, what it's become, which I also really enjoyed that it was, and it was a message that we didn't tie back to what we were all thinking about, but I, of course, like what we're there for, but I, of course, did because what AI can do, what G chat GPT can do wonderfully is tell a story in the voice of whoever. And even though it puts these hallucinations out there, it, it can do a lot of the things that we do pretty well. Like it can write a news article about a conference. It can write headlines. And so if the 
and he's correct, like the essence of what really draws us to storytelling and the stories that are told is the humanity of it and the authenticity of it. And that's exactly what AI does not bring to this. So it makes me wonder about the future of our world and where we're headed, where you have some very strange things that will be happening that will make you question reality and the authenticity of reality, where people are going to use, you know, generative AI to create LinkedIn posts. And then they're going to use generative AI to respond to LinkedIn posts. And eventually it's just going to be generative AI on social media and elsewhere talking to generative AI. And we're not even going to know if we're really there's humans behind it or not. And so um, it's like we get to the point where there's this, we lose the essence of what makes us human and what reality actually is. And so I wonder how that's going to impact our world and what that's going to look like since he's correct. Like that's part of what I've thought a lot about that too, Nikki, and I, I was very impressed by it. And, you know, I, I keep going back though. I mean, we, we, is what's the old saying? You have to decide what business you're in. And as lawyers, I think we were in the business of communication and persuasion. And that's why storytelling is so effective. And, and, but we we are communicate we are in the business of persuading humans other humans right and so that's why i wonder with the with the chat gpt whether it will ever ever get sophisticated enough to actually persuade humans in the way we are used to be being persuaded well effect. you say that but the colombian and i stephanie will know the facts better but i know she talked about it but that colombian judge is who's already using chat gpt to create and the creation of his opinions so mm -hmm. it's good leak into everything that we do as lawyers and as writers because we're all here journalists too but it's going to really creep into what we do and uh change sort of the essence of what we do and i'm not sure as much as i absolutely love chat gpt and everything if this is a good i don't think it's a good thing i don't know what it's going to look like <laughs> it's a little terrifying yeah you know I, I well when i gave i was in a presentation with pablo at tech show and somebody from the audience it may have been kevin o'keefe asked well you know won't this won't this been able won't, won't chat gpt just let you write write the blog for you or write the brief for you and i said well, well write the novel for you or the story for you and and i said well maybe but chat gpt can't can't write a story like ernest hemingway right i mean it's that's unique but then i thought well, after that well, at some point it probably can if you ask it to write it in terms of you know how in, in the style of Ernest Hemingway, but what it probably can't do, and this may be really unfortunate, is is write the story of that a the next Ernest Hemingway would write because Ernest Hemingway broke I mean he broke the storytelling model, the novel model, the story model with what he did, and if we if we start using artificial intelligence to write all these things for us, does that suppress the ability of the of the next Ernest Hemingway, the next Picasso, for example, to, to have that room to, to grow and develop and, and create their own voice. That, that's kind of a worrisome thing to me. Yeah, yeah I agree. And, go ahead, Bob. Go ahead, no, go ahead. Oh, no, I agree. And I mean, it can be a little worrisome. So when I was doing the other keynote with Dan Schulman, we ended up talking a lot about this because he's talked, I mean, in being in the tech world, he's talked to a lot of people in the generative AI space and whatever. And he went so far as to say, like, you know, that the the quote that genius is one percent perspiration, 
99% inspiration. Did I get that right? Yeah. He's like, and everyone thinks that AI is coming for that perspiration part, the road work, but he said it's really coming for the inspiration. Like creative is the biggest thing it's going for. And some of the tools he said are coming, are talking terrifying, but like, I, I guess where I come out on it is that I still want to encourage everyone to think of it, you know, sort of as a starting point, because I mean, that's the most optimistic I can be about it because I don't want to be all, you know, fear mongering and doomsy about it. But like, yeah, I mean, it can it can launch those things, but maybe hopefully it can be a starting point to come to better things. I don't know. It's tough. It is tough, especially as the, the writer side. I agree. Can it cool. actually mimic human experience and human emotion? I, I, I don't I don't see how it could ever get there. No, one of the one of the, when I was uh, in Provo a couple of weeks ago, which may be where I got this disease. Uh, I, I got an email afterward from uh, one of the law librarians there asking if she could quote me in an article. <laughs> and it was one of those things again, where I apparently I said that I did not remember that I said it, but it sounded good when she quoted it back to me, which was something about the, the idea that I, you know, you use these you can use things like ChatGPT to, to write a legal brief, but uh, some of the best legal briefs are the legal briefs that are written in a totally creative way that are not written formulaically. Uh, and, you know, uh, if you if you start just relying on programs to create legal briefs, you're going to end up having just losing that whole idea of being creative in, in legal writing. And, and maybe sometimes, you know, maybe sometimes I mean, we've all seen those examples of the kind of briefs circulating around the Internet here and there where somebody just, you know, writes a brief in poetry or, or, or just does something totally crazy or uses comics to illustrate a brief or something uh, where it makes the brief so much more persuasive and so much more compelling because they've inserted that creative spark that I don't know. I don't know if GPT gets us there. Yeah. Well, I sort of, I, you just reminded me of sort of a different spin on, you know, I had a, I, I had a long interview with uh, Dan Rabinowitz from Predicta, and he, he is not using open AI technology, but his approach to his prediction tool is finding out the unique characteristics of judges. And that's the premise it's built on, that you know, judges, their experience, where they went to law school, who they associate with, like, he, I mean, I, it's a, it, it, in some ways, it reminds me of where Ravel started in, in sort of saying, well, judges rely on certain precedents, but he doesn't look at precedent at all. He only looks at the human being and how what he knows about the human being is likely to impact the outcome of cases. That was, I met with him too, and that was my most memorable briefing, I would say. Uh, and I was super impressed both by which, what you, how you described, described it, which is that he, uh, that tool simply looks at everything you could possibly know about the judge and then the case number, if they have it, if it's already been filed. And it can predict, according to him, with 85, 84 to 85% accuracy, whether you're going to win or lose a motion to dismiss in federal court. That's pretty shocking if it's true. Like, that's right. Which, right. And now he's moving into state court with the gabalytics. The other thing I learned, right. about, and he apparently he he won an award at the uh, at, at the uh, the awards night, which was I thought was great since he was yeah. innovator of the year in vendor yeah. categories. Yeah, yeah, that was great. Well, the other great thing I learned about him is that he is actually a Hebrew literature scholar, and he's like he's like a rare book scholar. So so we got off on a great tangent with that. <laughs> I didn't learn that during my briefing. I think I would that have been super interesting. That's very cool. But it's interesting what we were talking before about, you know, 
can it do that? I mean, so we already have sentiment analysis coming into e-discovery, right? Where they're able to sort of parse sentiment and tone out of documents. Doesn't seem as far of a stretch to me if you once you can do sentiment analysis to eventually do sentiment generation. I, I mean, TM, I coined that term just yeah. now, I guess. But you know, I mean, I don't we yeah, you can't do these things yet, but like I I don't think they're that far off. The things you were talking about, Bob, like to go yeah. in and be like, write a creative legal brief in the form of a comic book. Yeah, maybe, I guess. I don't know. All right, so what I'm hearing is uh, this legal week is kind of a thing and I should probably think about going to it next year. Uh... <laughs> I learned a lot of lessons personally from my first one of how to do my second one. So it would be nice for us to be there at the same time. <laughs> I, th I think the better lesson for you, Bob, is not to get sick so you can't go to legal week. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm. I'll, I'll work on that going or forward. Or avoid Provo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. Well, um, anything else we want to talk about this week? I, I was. I. I mean, kind of a little bit off topic, but I also thought it was maybe worth just mentioning this sort of a, another couple steps this week in the whole evolution. There's a lot of talk lately about the whole marriage of fintech and legal tech, and. Um, uh, the one conference I did go to that you guys didn't go to, that one in Miami a while ago, uh, the Legal Tech Fund conference, where they kept just talking a whole lot about, uh, the, you know, had several panels on the kind of marriage between fintech and legal tech. Uh, and there was a, a story this week about uh, uh, this uh, company, Lean Law, which is a sort of cloud-based uh, um, financial management system for, for law firms it raised, raised, uh, what was it? $5 million or something like that. I actually hadn't heard that much about them, honestly, even though apparently they've been around for several years now, but they kind of build themselves as a, a, a sort of midway between financial management and practice management. Uh, and I thought that was interesting only cause, uh, you know, law pay, uh, just put out its, uh, Law Pay Pro, which they uh, announced, uh, well, a couple months ago, but I think they were again talking about it a tech at show. Nikki's briefing this week at, at Legal Week and a, and a tech show. But, you know, Law Pay Pro is sort of also this sort of bridge between a pure sort of financial payments platform and a practice management platform. Um, and so I think it's interesting that we're kind of seeing these, these uh, products that are a little bit hybrid finance and practice management uh, without uh, without uh, you know fully going fully practice management uh, and um, I don't know what that signifies exactly but uh, it seems to be uh, uh, a, a trend that's that's uh, you know a, a couple of different companies are evidencing now and again from that from the talk at that legal tech fund conference back in in Miami. Uh, I think. Oh, and then the other one is a, like 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 Noda, which is the sort of the the bank for for lawyers, uh, and uh, they've been making a big push now uh, as a sort of a banking application for lawyers. And should lawyers, uh, you know, it, it could be interesting to see uh, how the conversation goes around that in the wake of everything that's happened Ooh. with Silicon Ooh, Valley. I thought bank. the bank for lawyers was Signature Bank. <laughs> <laughs> you know, actually, but that they raises were. another question. I was really surprised there was really no discussion of any of the tech startups being in trouble because of Silicon Valley Bank. And I thought there'd be a little bit of discussion of that. And I didn't hear a word. Did anybody else hear anything? No, that no, that's true. I didn't hear anything. It's either. very clear that none of you came to the keynote I moderated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was the yeah, because I went to Nikki's dinner. I well, yeah. 
Well, no, I mean, we didn't talk about it in depth, but I did raise it, you know, with PayPal being straddling the banking and tech worlds. And I, I, I did ask, you know, I brought up that issue. It wasn't, I mean, it was one of many questions we talked about in a very short period of time, but I would like it on the record that it was raised illegally by myself. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, but, I had... but not that any of the legal tech startups were hit. You were, you were talking to legal, you were talking to tech generally, like, but well, but no, I said it. There's but... probably a lot of startups in this room that were impacted by it, you know? Well, they, none of them were they're impacted ultimately out. because of what happened. I mean, I, I actually scrambled that yeah. weekend and made a bunch of phone calls, and I actually was actually able to track down a couple of different legal tech companies that were wondering how they were going to make payroll on Monday yeah. uh, at that point. But then by Monday, they were making payroll. So I kind of I never did a story kind of because like one guy talked to me in depth and then he was kind of like hmm, maybe i shouldn't have told you all that stuff i just told you about how i'm in danger of going out of business of this you know um so well, i ended up not writing the federal about it, government but... make sure yeah that so it, it ended up being so a non-issue for them yeah yeah i, I think yeah. the more interesting issue is for all yeah i think the more interesting issue going forward is is what happened with some of the what it might mean for for lawyers as well as legal tech companies in terms of where they want to be putting their money did you have an iolta you know if you had your iolta funds there what what did that tell you about how you should be where you should be putting your iolta money and how you should what duty do you have to be monitoring you know the health of a bank could could you have known something there would you have been negligent somehow if you had lost all that money if it was in an iolta account there well and one um, thing i read that was super interesting and i'm not sure if it's still the case or not so maybe y'all can tell me was that it so if you that you need to know where your clients hold all their other money because i read that it'll protect someone up to the maximum 250,000 like an entity or a person but total that the bank holds and that the IOLTA is a part of that total, like the money that's being held in a lawyer's IOLTA. And I'm, I'm not sure if this, this was outdated. It was from a Jim Calloway well, post quite a while ago. No, it, it's a great point. But uh, but the government has already said they're going to blow past the 250 limit yeah. for bailing these guys out. But generally speaking, is it? Oh, correct. A, because then if you say I'm a business and I have 200,000 of my own dollars there, and I paid a lawyer 150, and the lawyer puts it in their IOLTA, who happens to be at the same bank, then your money's not protected under that 250 limit because you've got more than 250 there. So I wonder, that was not an issue that was ever on my radar. And I wonder if it's something lawyers need to start asking their clients just to make sure that their clients know that we're putting this in an IOLTA that's in the same bank you may be having uh, money close to that limit. I heard a story, I don't know if it's true, of a lawyer just put, having received a settlement check and putting it into IOLTA in Silicon Valley that week, earlier that week, uh, for like $600,000 or something like that. And then, you know, biting his fingernails uh, in terms of what was going to happen. Um, I will, I, and we haven't, I don't know if we've set a date yet, but we're, I'm actually going to be part of a uh, CLE program this week. Uh, I think it's on Lawline on this topic uh, this next week uh we're going to have a uh, some iolta specialists and some banking specialists uh and some lawyer liability specialists i think talking about all of this uh all right well i think we uh, have done it for this week and uh appreciate uh hearing uh everything that uh almost made me feel like i was there just hearing all about it so i appreciate that and uh until until next week, thanks to everybody and have hope you all have a good weekend and a good week. Bye all. Bye all. Great weekend, everyone.